Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about prejudice versus business tipping point. The idea that there is a point at which it's unprofitable to be a bigot or to practice discrimination. And that often, rather than the moral imperative to treat everybody the same and fairly, it is sometimes the financial incentive that inspires equality. We're going to talk with Jim Murray, president of AT&T Michigan, newly elected chair of Equality Michigan, and Annie Turner, who's the co-director of Altarum Institute's Center for Sustainable Health Spending and the lead author of The Business Case for Racial Equity. And we're going to want to hear from listeners for sure during that segment, 313-577-1019. What is the right imperative that we ought to be focusing on to get people to treat other people equally, regardless of their backgrounds or beliefs or skin color. Is it money or is it some sort of moral case that we ought to be making? But first, on Friday afternoon, Congresswomen and men in the House of Representatives were debating sweeping changes to Obamacare. They had been debating those changes all week while the majority was struggling to whip up support for those changes. But President Donald Trump was insisting that a vote be held. And abruptly, at about 4 p.m., the House was called into recess with no further debate and no vote. At that very moment, President Trump was calling a reporter from The Washington Post to tell him that the deal was off and Republican leadership would move away from trying to reform health care. But the deal fell apart over a series of bungled meetings throughout the week. It made a few things clear. One is that the House Freedom Caucus was serious about holding upholding its ideology. House P- Speaker Paul Ryan was stronger on the policy than he was in the negotiation process. And President Donald Trump neither understood the legislation nor the strength of the opposition to it. Now, it looks like all key Republicans are pointing fingers at each other over who's to blame. My first guest this morning wrote a very detailed blow-by-blow account of just how this debacle unfolded over the week. Tim Alberta is a reporter with Political Magazine, and he joins us now. Tim, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Tim. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about what you learned by sort of trying to unpack all of this. I mean, there's been a lot of mocking of President Trump, some mocking of Speaker Paul Ryan in in the wake of this, I, I have to say that it, when you look at it in sort of a timeline fashion in terms of uh, the, the narrative, they both come off sort of as amateurs, like people who don't know how to get a complicated piece of legislation written uh, uh, onto the floor and voted on in the affirmative. I think that's a fair assessment. I think that, you know, and sort of the, the uh, amateurish uh, process could be sort of looked at in different ways, uh, you know, depending on which guy you're talking about. But in, in, in President Trump's case, I think that, look, you know, he famously remarked a few weeks ago that, you know, who knew health care could be this complicated? And I think uh, everyone in Washington sort of rolled their eyes and said, well, we all know that this is complicated. I mean, there's a reason that for seven years, Republicans failed to coalesce around a single plan to repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act. I think there's a reason that it took Democrats over a year to actually pass their bill after uh, all kinds of internal 
uh, beefs and 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 policy disagreements uh, down to you know some of the smallest language that wound up being included in the bill. So I think everybody understood that, and and, and you know President Trump made I think a, a fatal error, which was to essentially remove himself from the specifics of the process and to allow Speaker Ryan to basically. Uh, he, you know, the White House essentially outsourced all of the policymaking in this case. And, right. and look, Donald Trump is a business executive. We understand he's kind of a big picture guy. He's never going to be, you know, intimately involved necessarily with, with all of the details and all the specifics in legislation. But he's the president. He has to be somewhat involved. He has to have some sort of at least kind of broad knowledge uh, of, of what's going on and what's in the bill and why and what it accomplishes and and. And, and President Trump never had that. So I think that that was a real weakness on his part, is when he was meeting with some of the groups involved, some of the stakeholders were pressing him on certain things that he simply could not negotiate them because he didn't even understand really what they were talking about. And then, on, and then very quickly, on, on Paul Ryan's side, you know, the speaker, I think, really took for granted that uh, there was, you know, I think he was very presumptuous that in 18 days, he was able. He, he was going to be able to push a bill through the House that many people didn't like, many people didn't fully understand, that hadn't really been fully vetted. I, you know, he was very confident that because these principles had been laid out in sort of a visionary document that the House Republicans released last year, that everybody was on board, but they were not on board. And I think that as it became clear that there was a, a great deal of dissent uh, and disruption in his conference over whether or not. Uh, this was actually the bill that they had promised the voters in terms of the, the you know, the promise to repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, Speaker Ryan really just sort of took took on this kind of tone-deaf attitude as the process went on, basically just I- ignoring all of the outcries. And it wasn't just from the conservatives in his conference. He, he had arguably the most powerful chairman in the House, the appropriations chairman, announced on Friday afternoon that he was going to be voting against it. And that was really an astonishing moment, Stephen, I, I, for people who aren't really familiar with Capitol Hill, so the appropriations chairman to sure. come out against the speaker is almost unheard of. It and doesn't so happen, yeah. It, it just it just speaks to how... Yep, I think we've lost Tim a little bit there. Oh, there you are. Yep. <laughs> All right, well, we'll get Tim Alberta back on the line. Meanwhile, let's, uh, let's get the phones going about uh, the collapse of... The health care bill in Washington last week, uh, the, the, the last minute decision to not hold a vote at all on the House floor on a bill that uh, had very little support uh, was very controversial and that both President Donald Trump and Speaker Paul Ryan had put a lot of political capital into what what do you think about what happened last week? Are you glad that the health care reform bill failed? Do you think that was the right policy outcome? Uh, but also, what do you think about the way this was handled? What do you think about the idea that they got so close to a vote uh, but then backed away? Uh, what do you think about the idea of leadership? President Trump ran last year saying that his style of making deals in business, uh, the the deal maker, the art of the deal, was one of the strengths he was bringing to the Oval Office. And he made fun, in fact, of politicians, said they are, in many cases, very, very stupid people who don't know how to get things done. And that when he got to Washington, he would bring his considerable business savvy and experience to bear on these problems and that he could get things done in very short order. He said on day one at some point he was going 
to tackle the problems with the Affordable Care Act. Turns out this is a little more complicated than he thought and certainly more complicated than he implied it would be to the people who voted for him. So is President Trump, uh, is he going to be challenged more in this job than he thought he would? Should he reach out to Democrats? Should he reach across the aisle and say, hey, uh, you guys may have some ideas about health care, the the Affordable Care Act, some of the problems that we have with it? Uh, Could he work with them to put together a coalition of Democrats and moderate Republicans to get something passed? Should Democrats go along with that? Should Democrats even be interested in talking with President Trump about this issue. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today will work your comments into the conversation. We do have Tim Alberta, a reporter at Political Magazine, back with us. Uh, Tim, I want to give you a chance to follow, uh, to finish your thought before we before we get to the phones. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm in, uh, apparently in a go through a bad cell area there. Yeah, the, essentially, just really quickly to, to finish the point, it was just to say that, um, you know, when, when the Appropriations Committee chairman in the House comes out against a piece of legislation that the Speaker has invested so much political capital in, it's, it's really an astonishing moment. And I think that for all of the kind of reactionary blame being laid at the feet of the House Freedom Caucus, and there's no question that they were oppositional and obstructionist here, but there were several dozen moderate and centrist members of Congress, including the appropriations chairman, who came out against this bill as well. So there is not sort of a simple, easy, clean narrative here as far as, you know, conservatives bucking the president and conservatives bucking the speaker. There was opposition across the ideological spectrum in the Republican Party, and that really does not bode well at all for for either the White House or for Speaker Ryan moving forward. Sure. The other thing, the other dynamic I think we've seen happen since this bill came out since they since they debuted on on the house floor is number one that its popularity has sunk to really remarkable depths as at the same time that the popularity of the affordable care act which is what it sought to replace has gone to heights that we haven't seen before either which i think probably marks uh, a more fundamental shift in this in this debate uh the, the idea that uh, the ACA is broken, I think, is is getting less traction today than it used to, while this idea of replacing it with something that's more market-based, maybe cheaper for the government, uh, while it sounded good on the campaign trail, it seems as though voters and citizens may be rethinking all of that. Well, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, I don't think there's any question that, th- there, that the Affordable Care Act does have flaws, and that, and that in, in some ways... Um, significant trouble lays ahead if insurers continue to pull out and if, and if choices for consumers uh, continue to dwindle. I don't, I don't think there's any question, and Democrats will sort of privately acknowledge that. And, and but, but look, I think especially when you talk about, you know, Medicaid expansion, I think probably what's underappreciated is how many people are affected, not just uh, specifically by uh, being individuals in the marketplace, even and, and having to choose insurance because they're you know self-employed or something, but the, the expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act now covers lots and lots and lots of people who were not previously covered by Medicaid. Right. And so, and I think it's very important to realize that a lot of these folks are working class, non-college whites and, and elderly people, and those are sort of 
two of two of the cornerstones of the Trump coalition that that carried him in November, and they are, you know, those two demographic groups are overwhelmingly uh, the composition of the most conservative districts in in Congress. And so, when people sort of theorize over the last couple of weeks that, you know, well maybe these guys they're so scared of their constituents losing coverage that they actually don't want to repeal Obamacare, so they're going to, you know, jack up their demands to a point where they can never be met, and so then they'll vote no. And what they're really actually doing is trying to protect Obamacare. I'm not necessarily buying all the way into that, but I do think there's a certain element here, Stephen, without question, uh, that the conservatives are very concerned about, you know, owning whatever they pass. In other words, Democrats are still on the hook for Obamacare, and it's easy to beat them up for it. But the second they cast a vote in favor of a program that either pulls coverage out from underneath their constituents or jacks up the price of coverage for their constituents, or God forbid both, which many people felt this bill would have done, I think that that's just a terrible vote politically to take for a lot of these guys, and I think they've realized it. All right. Again, 313-577-1019 on the phones, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Let's go to Dan in Birmingham. Dan, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah. Yeah, hi. Uh, I was just wondering, we keep talking about the Freedom Caucus, and they're they're the ones who sank the bill, but were any moderate Republicans, did they, did they actually voice their concern and, and intent to vote against the bill, uh, thanks in part to the raucous town hall meetings. Yeah, Dan, great question. Uh, Tim Alberta, we saw lots of Republican members of Congress hold town hall meetings uh, over the last couple of weeks that, that were really raucous, in some cases very just out-and-out out confrontational. We saw that have some effect on the Affordable Care Act itself, when it was being debated and passed, that the anger that it seemed to engender among citizens, uh, I think, changed some some of the features of the bill. Uh, here, we saw the same sort of reaction. Did it all, did it have the same effect? Did did, did that help drive this fear among uh, some members of Congress about about passing it? I don't think there's any question uh, that there, there was a, a mobilization among not just Democrats uh, sort of in opposition to what the House Republicans were trying to do, but a lot of independents and, and in, I think, plenty of cases, uh, concerned Republican voters who were looking around and sort of, as we discussed a second ago, maybe realizing that uh, the Affordable Care Act was giving them a, you know, a certain set of uh, you know, protections as it related to their health care that they maybe didn't necessarily fully appreciate or or were scared suddenly of having stripped away and i don't and there's just no doubt when you talk to members of congress over the last month that many of them were feeling the heat in their districts in a way that they did not anticipate and i think what's really interesting Stephen, to note also is that um if you think back about a week ago when speaker ryan was being asked you know why the rush here and they were saying, well, look, you know, the markets are collapsing and this thing is unraveling and we need to do this as soon as possible. I don't doubt that there's a kernel of truth to that, at least as far as the speaker believing in himself is concerned that he wanted to do this as fast as possible, you know, to prevent further damage being done to the healthcare system, et cetera, et cetera. But when you talk to people behind the scenes, including some of the speakers, staunchest allies, they all said, look, we need to get this done before the Easter recess. We're in, we are in town here in Congress for the next three weeks. If we don't get this done before the Easter recess, these people are all going to go home 
and for two weeks is going to get an earful about 24 million people being uninsured under the uh, under this new American Health Care Act, and, and they're going to come back and they're never going to vote for it. And yeah. I think that that's really important to remember here, that, that, that Ryan and his people in Congress and the leadership, they understood that the next time all of these folks went home for a prolonged period and were part of these town halls, they were going to get killed. And so they had to pass this thing before that. Yeah. Uh, Dan, again, thanks very much for the call and and the great question. Uh, let's go to Warren in West Bloomfield. Warren, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Hi, Thank how you are for you? taking my call. Sure. Uh, Stephen, you made a point in the break there uh-huh. about the Democrats possibly talking with Trump. Right. I, I just had this flash. Why not? I don't think Trump is a true Republican. And myself, I'm kind of on the fence. But the Democrats should go in there and negotiate with them. Co-opt the executive office. Throw out some great <laughs> ideas. Do the negotiation. Be the bigger people, the ones who really have America in their best interest. Right. Yeah. No, Warren. I think uh, I think that's a great point too. It's something I've sort of been thinking about over the weekend and and heard some other folks say. Thanks for for calling in with that point, uh, Tim Alberta. Talk about the opportunity here for for Democrats to come out, I think the greater opportunity is, as Warren points out, uh, to to connect with the American people who, as you point out, still have real questions about the, the long-term sustainability of, of the ACA. There are some problems that need addressing. Could the Democrats make this their moment and say, here's how we would fix it. Uh, we're going to go to the president and make those proposals and try to work with Republicans who uh, you know, are on the center, center right, to, to put together a coalition that will get it done? So I think it's a really interesting idea, and I think that actually politically it's probably smart over the long term. But when you talk to Democrats right now, Stephen, uh, you know, folks from all, all, all across the country and, and lawmakers who represent districts all across the country, there is such a, a deeply ingrained and passionate sort of, you know, a real urgency for this party to oppose everything and anything uh, that Donald Trump and the Republican Party puts forth right now. And, it, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of, I think, Monday morning quarterbacking as far as, well, should Donald Trump have come straight out of the gate with something like infrastructure, where he probably would have forced at least, you know, 40 or 50 Democrats in the House, if not more, to come along with him, because he would have been basically proposing funding for a bunch of airports and ridges and, and, and roads and hospitals in their districts. Um, and that way, he could have sort of built some bipartisan momentum right out, right out of the gate and then sort of carry that over into health care or tax reform or whatever. I think that that's a really interesting proposition, and maybe it would have been a better start. But I think that that maybe ignores the fact that most of these Democratic legislators are terrified of their base at this point. They, they, they are basically getting a mandate to resist and to oppose uh, period full stop. I think there's very little appetite for, for bipartisan cooperation on the Democratic side of the aisle right now. Yeah. Uh, now, that could change uh, if, if and when Democrats sort of get together and say, well, look, you know, we've, this, this president has been humbled, he's been defeated, and now is our time to sort of, you know, um, project ourselves as the responsible governing party, not just the opposition party. That could happen. And I think Republicans, frankly, when they were in the minority, never really made that transition. And, and, and now they're sort of reaping what they sowed in that regard. But I don't really see it happening anytime soon. I think they're, they're fully content just to continue 
sort of opposing everything the president does and just standing back and, and watching this thing implode. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Tim Alberta. He's a reporter with Political Ma- Politico magazine. He has written uh, a deconstruction, really, of the the demise of the AHCA, the Republican replacement for the Affordable Care Act. We saw that implode last week, last Friday, when Speaker Paul Ryan decided not to hold a vote on the bill after uh, promising uh, earlier in the week that he that he would hold the vote and that he thought it would pass. Uh, that means likely we're not going to have a health care debate, a significant debate about changes to the Affordable Care Act this year. What do you think about that? What do you think about what the Republicans did or tried to do, uh, their failure to get that done? What does that say about the leadership of Paul Ryan and the Speaker as the Speaker of the House? What does it say about the leadership of Donald Trump as the President of the United States? This is his first major policy initiative, uh, and he couldn't get it done after promising for more than a year that he would very quickly be able to dismantle the Affordable Care Act and come up with something better. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. You can also go to Politico magazine and read the article uh, that uh, Tim Alberta has written about this, about how the health care bill failed. Uh, see what that sort of uh, narrative TikTok version of what happened looks like. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Elaine in Roseville. Elaine, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Hi. Uh-huh. Hi. Um, hello, Mr. Alberta. Um, I don't know if it was uh, fake news or alternate facts or whatever, but I read on CNN.com uh, before the vote that the uh, Koch brothers promised to withdraw billions of dollars uh, in campaigns, future campaigns, etc., to any uh, Republican that voted for the uh, bill uh, because it didn't um, change, uh, quote-unquote, Obamacare enough. Um, I don't know if that was uh, true. You know what I'm saying. I read it yeah. online, so who knows? Sure. <laughs> well, and that's... Don't cut talk you, you guys you, get to answer me. I do have you on my radio. <laughs> you're, you're, doing, you're doing the right thing, though, Elaine. You're trying to call somebody who actually has some knowledge of what happened to, to figure out whether what you saw online was true. And that's that's the right approach, <laughs> not just to, to read it and, and believe it. Uh, so, Tim Alberta, talk about what role the Koch brothers, who are huge funders, of course, of Republican campaigns across the country, what role did they play in all of this? Yeah, so Eileen's uh, reading of it, I think, was mostly accurate. Uh, the, the, what, what, I, what I saw and what I uh, was told firsthand was that what the Koch brothers were offering to do was to uh, essentially uh, produce an enormous campaign pool, an enormous pool of campaign funding, I should say, for anyone who was willing to vote against the bill because uh, there were threats over the last several weeks that some of the very powerful interests in town uh, associated and allied with Speaker Ryan and with the Republican Party, with Republican leadership, they were threatening to pull their funding for members who dared to defy them and to vote against this bill. So what the Kochs were offering to do was to prop up anybody who voted for the bill with millions of dollars in their next campaign. I did not see anything about the Kochs 
uh, pulling funds from people who voted for it. That may very well have been the case. I did not see that, and I was not told about that. Um, but again, it's interesting. You know what we saw here materialize over the last several weeks was sort of the reliable conservative opposition to the Republican leadership. And I think, Stephen, that a lot of us were expecting to see something of a paradigm shift with a with a Republican president coming into office because. Yes. The last time you had a Republican president, George W. Bush, the party really did just kind of quietly fall in line behind him with a few notable exceptions uh, on a lot of these, you know, not really too conservative policies from no child left behind to Medicare Part D to the bank bailouts. Uh, there was very little conservative opposition to the Republican president. And I think that we all expected that, you know, the Freedom Caucus and some of these other actors, the Heritage Foundation and the Club for Growth and the Koch brothers, that maybe they would more or less kind of fall in line unless there was some, you know, really significant ideological fault line here. And it turns out that there was, that, that, there, was, that there was just no consensus around uh, how to approach health care and that the Republican leadership wanted something very different from the conservative grassroots. And I think that we were all kind of surprised at how fierce the conservative opposition was. We weren't, we weren't surprised that they were willing to take on Speaker Ryan in this way. But I think we were all kind of surprised that they were this willing to go against Donald Trump on his yeah. first major policy. Uh, and, and we are starting to see some sources are reporting, for instance, that uh, Representative Ted Poe may be defecting from the Freedom Caucus as protest over what happened? Are, are we likely to see some fraying with that caucus uh, because of this? I mean, are, are they going to hold together and and sort of go their own way, or are, they, are some of them going to say, you know what, uh, I got to I got to work with the majority here? That's a great question. Um, I think that you know the dirty little secret around Washington and, and inside Congress, people who really know that group, and and the guys who are sort of at the core of the Freedom Caucus. Um, I would just, it's sort of dumb luck, but six or seven years ago, I covered all these guys way before the Freedom Caucus was even formed. And so I know these guys really, really well. I sort of understand how they operate and how they think. And they used to all be part of this bigger group, Stephen, called the Republican Study Committee, uh-huh. uh, which was for years sort of the, the preeminent conservative group in Congress. But the group got so big that, that some of these really, really conservative Tea Party members, they broke away because they felt that that group was no longer kind of ideologically pure. And they formed this group, the Freedom Caucus. Well, Sort of the dirty little secret is that this group has about 36 members, 37 members, and really only about 15 or 20 of them are like hardcore ideological purists. The others are like, you know, they're pretty conservative and they come from conservative districts, but they're not willing to like shut down the government, for example, over over a spending fight as a lot of these, as you know, probably 15 or 20 of the others are. So it will be very interesting to see in the weeks and months ahead whether or not that group is able to sort of bind itself together or whether more members do what Ted Poe just did yesterday and announced that, you know what, this is not what they signed up for. They're not here to obstruct the Republican president and to obstruct the speaker and the leadership in the Congress. And so watching these sort of internal divisions on the right is going to be, you know, in my mind, as far as the legislative sausage being made, it's going to be one of the most fundamentally important storylines to monitor in the Trump presidency because it's going to determine to a large extent whether he can get anything done. Okay. Tim Alberta, reporter at Politico Magazine. As always, thanks for being with us on Detroit Today. Yeah, my pleasure. Absolutely. And you can go check out Tim's article at politico.com. All right, up next, we're going to talk about the tipping point between personal prejudice and financial interest. What is the more compelling reason to get people to stop engaging in discrimination? Is it a moral case or is there a profit motive? 
Stay with us on Detroit Today. Thank you.